Some of you are here old enough to remember the Oldsmobile. There used to be a commercial, this is not your father's Oldsmobile, as they were trying to make the new Oldsmobile palatable to the younger generation. Well, quite frankly, my father's Oldsmobile was tons better than what they were offering. And Oldsmobile went out to business. They no longer make the Oldsmobile. And with what's going on in our country and the recent Supreme Court rulings, we can also say this is not your father's America. As I knew it would be, I found it difficult to sing the songs that we sang this morning about a land we have loved and we continue to love where we've been blessed by our Heavenly Father. For Father's Day, my daughter Elizabeth gave me the DVD series, HBO series, Band of Brothers. And she said she would watch it with me, brave girl. <laughs> she petered out last night. She wasn't up to watching the last two episodes. It's the true, gruesome story about the men of the 101st Airborne Division who, after a year and a half of training, parachuted behind enemy lines on D-Day in Normandy. And they fought and they endured the Battle of the Bulge, where more men froze to death than were killed in battle. They fought to the end of the war in Europe. They occupied Hitler's eagle's nest, his great, magnificent fortress, uh, at the end of the war. At the fourth, on the 4th of July, we celebrate our freedoms that were paid for and fought for, and we honor the sacrifice and commitment to those who have paid dearly. We give God thanks for the many blessings. We give God thanks for our nation's founders who saw fit to establish a land of freedom and liberty that they defined as biblical freedom and liberty. But we also grieve over what has been lost what has been lost in our culture, in particular in America. This past month, everybody in the media has been talking about the recent Pew Research Survey. And the results of the survey were entitled, America's Changing Religious Landscape. Christians decline sharply as share of population, unaffiliated, and other faiths continue to grow. Some pundits have gone so far as to say Christianity is dying in America. For the first time in the history of our country, those who profess to be Christians, the numbers are in decline, steep decline. From 1990 to 2007, the number of people who claim to be Christian has gone down 12%. Those in the mainline, mainline Protestant churches, that is the Presbyterian, Lutheran, Methodist, and Episcopalians, have plummeted from 50% of the U.S. population in 1958, half the U.S. population, to just 14% today. One commentator surmised, by accommodating the social revolution of the 1960s to stay relevant, mainline churches appear to have made themselves irrelevant to America's young. The declining Christian identity is greatest among young people, while 85% of Christians born before 1945, 85% still call themselves Christians, only 57% of those born after 1980 do. In 1892, the Supreme Court said, this is a Christian nation. America was born a Christian nation, echoed Woodrow Wilson. Harry Truman affirmed it, this is a Christian nation. Yet in 2009, Barack Obama begged to differ. We do not consider ourselves a Christian nation, he said. And how could we? How could we consider ourselves a Christian nation? 
According to one pundit who writes from a political point of view, not even a religious point of view, half of the marriages end in divorce, fewer children are being born, and of these, over 40% are born out of wedlock. Record drug use rates and dropout rates and soaring crime rates that have declined only because we have an incarceration rate that rivals that of South Africa. Despite astonishing advances in medicine, we have far and far more varied and deadly sexually transmitted diseases. As Christianity dies, he continues, individualism, materialism, and hedonism replace it. Selfies could be the name for the generation for whom Easter Sunday long ago took a backseat to Super Bowl Sunday. More than a million abortions a year, assisted suicide and euthanasia are seen as the milestones of social progress in the new America. Pan Am at circuses. Bread and circuses were what the late Roman Empire was all about. With us, it's sex, drugs, and rock with variations on all three. Historically, he says, as the faith dies, the culture and civilization to which it gave birth die, and then the people die. And a new tribe with its own gods comes to occupy the emptying land. On the old and new continents, it is the native-born of European ancestry who are de-Christianizing, aging, and dying. And the nation they created are the ones depopulating, unquote. Well, welcome to 21st century America. So the question this morning is, how do we effectively serve God in 21st century America? This morning, we're going to look even briefly, really, at, at that from the book of Acts, how we effectively serve God. But before we come to solutions, we have to understand what we are, are dealing with. What's going on? In our Sunday school class, we've been studying the book of Ruth. What a, what a blessing. Book of Ruth in the Old Testament. And the book of Ruth begins with, now it came about in the days when the judges governed. So our first question in understanding God's word in this case is to ask, what were the days when the, governed, when the judges governed? What were they like? So let me take you back to those days, two passages back in the, the Old Testament to the book of Judges. First of all, to Judges chapter 17, verse 6. You might remember after the Pentateuch, first five books of the Bible, then there's Joshua, Judges, Ruth. So clear, clear back quite a ways there. Page 307 if you're using the, the Bible in the rack. Judges chapter 17 at verse 6. And in fact, uh, this particular verse is quoted or given twice in the book of Judges. Verse 6 of Judges 17 says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. And right here we see the exact same relativism that has characterized America more and more since World War II. You have your truth, I have mine. I'm sure you've heard that before. What is right for you is not necessarily right for me, and what is right for me is not necessarily right for you. You've heard that a million times. Philosophically, that's called modernism. Now, why would we talk about those kind of terms? Because we're trying to understand the culture and the people amongst whom we live, and if we don't understand them and where they're coming from, how are we going to reach them? Modernism. You have your truth, I have mine, everything's relative. 
But now we live in a culture that is referred to as postmodern, after modern. Postmodernism is now the predominant worldview, not only in America, but, but all over the world. And when it comes to truth, postmodernism takes it even a step further. And this is how most people in our culture think. In postmodernism, truth does not exist except as the individual wants it to exist. The worldview of postmodernism views all authority as a suspect. You don't trust anybody else. You only trust yourself. And it establishes the authority of the individual. Nothing is more important than the authority of the individual. Does that sound familiar? Everybody did what was right in their own eyes. And so everybody else is what? Wrong. You know, how many times do people call in even a conservative talk show program on the radio and say, Rush, you're wrong. <laughs> or the president's wrong. Or everybody's wrong. I'm right because I have studied it. I know better than everybody else. And it makes for good entertainment and good, for ra good radio. Now, modernism would have said, three strikes and you're out. All we have to do is come to an agreement what constitutes a strike. And when we've compromised and we come to an agreement what constitutes a strike, then we know. But as we saw this last week, that's not how the, even the Supreme Court thinks anymore. Postmodernism says... Three strikes and you're out, and they ain't nothing till I call them. I am the one that has the authority as the individual to call it a strike. It's not a strike until I call it a strike. The church can't call it a strike. Congress can't call it a strike. You know, only 6% of the people in our country trust Congress. See, there's that authority. You don't trust the, 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 the authority. You trust yourselves. It's only a strike if I say so. And so by a 5-4 decision, it's a strike. And my definition of a strike is better than your definition of strike. You know, you've probably heard, if you've listened to some of the commentators, they've all said this week, words no longer have meaning. They are exactly right. Words no longer have meaning. The term, the words established by the state as in the 50 states, no longer means established by the state. It means that it is provided by the federal government. So that's just one example. In postmodernism, truth does not exist except as the individual wants it to exist. Modernism said, you have your truth and I have mine. That's relativism. Postmodernism says, my truth is better than your truth, so your truth is not truth at all because I know what I'm talking about. And that's what most people are, are thinking today. So before we get into how to serve Christ in this kind of thinking and culture and worldview, let's turn to another verse in the book of Judges that describes where America is at as well. Turn back a little bit further in the book of Judges to chapter 2 at verse 6. The second chapter of Judges, beginning at verse 6, page 285 in the Bibles in the rack. In chapter 2 at verse 6, Joshua has given his final words to the people who have come into the promised land. Joshua is about ready to die. These are his last words. Verse 6 of Judges chapter 2. When Joshua dismissed the people, the sons of Israel went each to his inheritance to possess the land. The people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who had survived Joshua 
who had seen all the great work of the Lord, which he had done for Israel. While Joshua was alive, the people of Israel served the Lord, and the next generation served the Lord. And the key as to why they served the Lord is at the end of verse 7, because they had seen all the great work which the Lord had done for Israel. There would have been at least some who were still alive who had been through the 40 years of the wilderness. They had probably, even as children, witnessed the great things God had done in delivering them from Israel or from Egypt. All the plagues, all those kind of things. The crossing of the Red Sea, 10 times better than Cecil B. DeMille could do it, even though that's the best we can do it these days. They would have seen God work and how God had provided miraculously for them for 40 years in the wilderness, leading them by the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. God's presence being with them and with Moses being there. They, they saw that. Every time Moses went to the tent of meeting where he met with God and talked to him face to face, the pillar of cloud descended. And they would have seen that. They saw God work. And then they would have seen God work as they come into the promised land, as the angel of the Lord went before them, the falling of the walls of Jericho. And we could go on and on for, for several different times that they saw the Lord work. And even after Joshua died, during the days of the elders who survived Joshua, many of the people had still been eyewitnesses to the mighty works of the Lord and all that God had done for Israel. Verse 8. Then Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. And they buried him in the territory of his inheritance in timnath Heres in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gaash. All that generation also were gathered to their fathers. Now what follows at the end of verse 10 is the key to understanding post-modern, post-Christian America. The key to understanding our generation today. All that generation also were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord, nor yet the work which he had done for Israel. Now, three types of people are described in these verses. First of all, there are those who know the Lord and they have seen God work. They've seen the works of the Lord. They have seen him work in their lives. They've seen him work in their nation. We could call this firsthand faith. They know God personally, and they've seen God work. They've been there when God has worked. But then there came a generation that knew God, but they've never seen God work. They'd only heard that God had worked in the previous generation and worked for other people. We could call this secondhand faith. They know God, but if you ask them, what has God done in your life? Or when have, what have you seen God do? They're completely clueless. I can tell you what he did for grandma, or I can tell him what he did in our nation, or I can tell you this or that, but I, I don't know what he's done for me. A life-changing experience for me, I've mentioned this before, is when we lived in student housing at Central Baptist Seminary that there was a, a judge that was using one of the apartments for the office for the Christian Mediation Society, uh, Judge Perry. He'd retired from the judgeship to start a, a Christian ministry. And when he'd hear me coming down the stairs late for class, he would open his door and say, Bill, what has the Lord told you today? Well, he told me to get up and get dressed and get toothpaste. <laughs> and, and so for very long, I knew that I'd better know what God has done today because Judge Perry might be down at the bottom of the stairs asking me what he has, 
has done. What has God done in your life? What has he done today? And people are completely clueless. Now the scary part. We could call it third-hand faith, but it's really no faith at all. No faith at all. There arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord, at least the second-hand faith they knew the Lord. These don't know the Lord, nor yet the work which he had done for Israel. They don't know God, and they don't know God's works. They don't know the Lord. They're clueless to what God has done for Israel. They're clueless to what God has done for America. And that's exactly where the United States of America is at today. The founding of our nation has God's handprints all over it. But now we live in a generation where those who dominate the culture do not know the Lord, nor do they know the work of the Lord. And they do what is right in their own eyes. We don't have to go back as far as 1776 to see where faith was lost. We could see the work of God all over the Second World War. It was a miracle of God that the Nazis were defeated. You know, Janet says, why do you watch war movies to unwind? <laughs> because I see God all over it and <laughs> what he has done through faithful men and women who have sacrificed. There was, you know, if you've watched any of that PBS series on Nazi war machines, there's just no way that humanly we could have defeated Hitler. It had to be our God. I mean, they invented the jets. They invented the nuclear bomb. They invented all this kind of stuff long before we even got close. And they were just that far from using it time after time when the Lord intervened through the hand of these men and women who sacrificed. But after World War II, first-hand faith began to slip rapidly even in the church. A.W. Tozer, who's one of my favorite authors, wrote a landmark book in 1949 called The Pursuit of God. And I want you to hear what he says happened in the church after World War II and talking about how people went about their relationship with God and their intimacy with God. He says, The idea of cultivation and exercise so dear to the saints of old has now no place in our total religious picture. It is too slow, too common. We now demand glamour and fast-flowing action. A generation of Christians reared among push buttons and automatic machines is impatient of slower and less direct methods of reaching their goals. You know, this is 1949, long before texting and all of that kind of stuff going on. He says, we have been trying to apply machine-age methods to our relations with God. We read our chapter, have our short devotions, and rush away hoping to make up for our deep inward bankruptcy by attending another gospel meeting or listening to another thrilling story told by a religious adventure lately returned from afar. And I want to pause here for a moment because can you see the secondhand faith in all of this? You know, a lot of us related to what Jerry was sharing from those missionaries this morning because we relate with that. We've been through not the same things but similar things but there are people, and even in, in, in the 50s, in the 60s, in the 70s, who that's as close as they got to how God worked they were going to see. When the missionary came to town, that's, that's all that they were, were going to hear. They, they don't know how God works in their own lives. I hear how God works on the mission field or in the life of whoever's speaking that Sunday morning, but I've never seen God work in my life. And Tozier gets to the results. The tragic results of this spirit are all about us. Shallow lives, hollow religious philosophies, the preponderance of the element of fun in gospel meetings, 
the glorification of men, trust in religious externalities, quasi-religious fellowships, salesmanship methods, and he never saw the 21st century, the mistaking of dynamic personality for the power of the Spirit. These and such as these are the symptoms of an evil disease, a deep and serious malady of the soul. Tozer recognized firsthand faith, those who knew the Lord and had seen God work. He recognized secondhand faith, those who know God but never seen him work in their own lives. But even though he saw it coming, he didn't live long enough to see where America would be today. Since World War II, there has risen another generation who do not know the Lord, nor yet the work which he has done. If the church in the, of Jesus Christ is going to be effective in this 21st century, or even survive, if Grace Baptist Church is going to be effective, if families and Christians are going to survive in this culture, it's going to take something different than what the church in America, for the most part, of course, there are exceptions, and there are dynamic, spirit-filled churches. But it's going to take what the church in America, for the most part, has offered in the last few decades. With what is still coming in postmodern and post-Christian America, the typical Christian family, the typical American family, the young person who nominally associates with the church in some kind of loose fashion, mostly when it's convenient, are doomed to go the way of the world and the culture. That just isn't going to cut it. That is, if we as Grace Baptist Church don't somehow intervene in their lives meaningfully with the saving gospel of Jesus Christ and the sanctifying presence of the living God. So how do we effectively serve God in 21st century America? We're just going to start at it today, but I want us to at least see what Paul and Barnabas were doing in first century heathen, pagan Galatia, where it takes persistence, caring, commitment, and reverence. So please turn to the 14th chapter of the book of Acts. Acts chapter 14 at verse 19, page 1358. At this point, Paul and Barnabas enter a call in a town called Lystra in the region of Galatia. Paul and Barnabas have been worshipped as gods. No amount of words or effort can keep the people from offering sacrifice to them. And when Paul and Barnabas don't live up to their expectations as gods, they, they stone Paul. And they drag him outside the city and leave him for dead. One moment they see you as a god, the next moment when you don't live up to your godness, <laughs> then they try to take you out. Verse 19 of, of Acts chapter 14 but Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having won over the people, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. Now some of the people who had tried to stone Paul in Iconium and Antioch make their way to Lystra, and they persuade the fickle crowd to take Paul out. One moment they're shouting, Hosanna to our Lord Jesus Christ. The next moment they're what? They're shouting, crucify him, crucify him. Paul later warned Timothy, who grew up in the same town of Lystra, where Paul was stoned, indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Don't ever think, and I don't think we can think this anymore, just because we live in America, we somehow get a pass on this one. That we get a pass. The only time you get a pass on this one is if you go along with the world. 
We can no longer accept that persecution is going to be relegated to some snide remark at work or some ridicule in the dorm or the loss of a promotion or even the loss of a job. Not only is Christianity declining in America, it's becoming more and more criminalized. We've come a long way, a really a long way from about 1988 when I was pastoring in Elko and I would leave the back door of my church office open. My, my office was five foot by seven foot with a desk, a file cabinet, and three doors coming into it. Even as an architect today, I don't understand how that's physically possible. So just so I don't feel, you know, I'd open the back door whenever I could. And uh, off the back door was the main sidewalk that went up to the, the elementary school. And, and a young boy by the name of Benjamin would, would stop by and stand in the door and talk. And because uh, I usually had a bowl, glass bowl of M&Ms sitting right there. And, you know, he'd look at the M&Ms. Oh, you finally, you want some M&Ms? Yeah. <laughs> you know, and so, but right next to that uh, glass bowl of M&Ms was a beautiful little Schofield reference Bible. It was only about so big, but it had gold leaf and a black leather cover. I just paid a couple of bucks for it because some of the pages in Genesis had misprinted. They weren't very dark and bright. So I went to a Christian bookstore, got off a shelf, and paid about $2 for it. But he had come and admired that Bible. And there's always the opportunity to talk about what the Bible is about, who Jesus was, and, you know. And uh, I could tell he really wanted that Bible. So one day I gave it to him. You know, I handed it to him. He took it, and he... He just held it like it was the most precious treasure he had ever seen. And he, he opened it up and he looked at it. And we talked about what some of the words meant on, on some of the pages. And he would still talk about that once in a while. And he, he took it to school to show his teacher. And she said, it's against the law to bring a Bible to school. Lie. But that's postmodernism. Do you know that God's an outlaw in the public arena in, in America? And all those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, even if they're 10 years old. The bylaws and statement of faith of Grace Baptist Church now stand in direct opposition to the postmodern pronouncement of the Supreme Court of the United States of America. And I was just telling Jan yesterday, I thank God that we got that done before their decision because we have a paper trail to say we didn't do that as a result of their decision. Marriage in America is no longer defined as a human, as a union between one man and one woman, ordained and designed by God before the foundation of the world. What Paul calls the mystery is great, that marriage is a picture of Christ's love for his church. It's a picture of his love and relationship to the church, and that's why we don't mess with it, because messing with it messes with Christ's love for the church. Husbands, how are you to love your wives? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That's why we don't mess with the institution of marriage. Franklin Graham was right. The Supreme Court didn't define marriage and they can't redefine it. But they've given it their, their best shot. And that's why we must be persistent in these things. In verse 20 of Acts chapter 14, we see Paul's persistence. They just stone him and leave him for dead. Verse 20, but while the disciples stood around him, he got up and entered the city. <coughs> we touched on this a couple of weeks ago. Why on earth would Paul go back into that city? Why would he be so persistent? It's because, for, at least for one thing, there were new believers, new babes in Christ in Lystra 
who needed to be encouraged in the faith, the person who just brought them the good news message of Jesus Christ, supposedly lay dead outside the city. And not the least of those people, those new believers, were a, a young man by the name of Timothy, who had become Paul's son in the faith. Timothy's godly and faithful grandmother and mother, Lois and Eunice, were some of those disciples. And talk about persistence. The next day, Paul went away with Barnabas to Derby, a 40-mile walk just after Paul's bones had been crushed, his flesh had been ripped open the day before. Some people wonder, well, was this a miracle of, was Paul raised from the dead, or what, was this a miracle of resurrection? I don't think so, but I think it's even more a miracle of travel. I can't imagine, you know, at least if he had been resurrected, he might have been resurrected perfect physically, and he wasn't. I can't imagine the grace of God and uh, the comfort of God that'd be required to make a 40-mile trip on foot with all that excruciating pain that, that Paul must have been, been going through. But Paul never willingly lost a day. Since the door for ministry was closed at Lystra, he simply moved on to someplace else. Nothing daunted him, not even being stoned to death. He was persistent, as he said in Ephesus to the Ephesians in chapter 5, verse 16, he was committed to making the most of his time because the days are evil. Make the most of our time because the days are evil. Evil days like which we live in call for persistence. We have to make the most of our time. For one thing, most people aren't going to come to us. They won't come to us as individual believers. They won't come to us as a church. They won't come looking for us. They're not even looking for what we have to offer. And so like Paul, we need to be consistently dusting ourselves off when we get knocked down, as it were, and taking the gospel to people who need it, to our friends, to our relatives, to our neighbors, to our co-workers, any place we can, no matter how much it hurts, <laughs> making the most of our time because the days are evil. We also effectively serve God in this culture by caring for believers. And by that I mean by strengthening and encouraging them. Verse 21 of Acts chapter 14, while in Derby, After they had preached the gospel in that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Here we see the ministry of follow-up and discipleship. They made many disciples in, in one place, and then they went back to all the other places for the ministry of follow-up because Christians need to be encouraged. They need to be strengthened. They need to be discipled. They need to be given that through the Holy Spirit that they need to continue in the faith. They need to know God, and they need to see God work. So Paul and Barnabas backtracked and went to every city where they had proclaimed the gospel. They strengthened them. They encouraged them because they knew that the world, the flesh, and the devil were going to unleash everything they had against them. You know, in this culture in which we now live, Christian families, or any family for that matter, just aren't going to make it unless we as Christians of Grace Baptist Church are actively involved with the entire family. And by the entire family, I mean mom, dad, 2.5 kids, and the dog. <laughs> Whatever that family is. The entire family, not just the kids. 
in nurturing them, caring for them, strengthening them, discipling them, encouraging them to continue in the faith because they don't have a clue at this point that through many tribulations they must enter the kingdom of God. That doesn't mean they get saved by the tribulations. That's just the point for an ultimate salvation in Jesus Christ in heaven. There's a lot of stuff, <laughs> crummy stuff between here and there. And it really gets at the heart of what we're going to be about as Grace Baptist Church, doesn't it? Are we a people of grace? Grace Baptist Church. Are we a people in a place where we don't condemn people for who they are because that's the way the culture has made them to be? Where we love them for who they are it doesn't matter what pet doctrines they believe. It doesn't matter which political candidates they support. It doesn't matter which causes they put a flag for on their Facebook page. But do we love them? Do we share God's love with them? Do we consistently, once they've come to Christ, disciple them, nourishing them in sound doctrine, helping them to grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, encouraging them to continue in the faith and reminding them that through many tribulations they must enter the kingdom of God. And thirdly, we must be committed. Verse 24 of Acts chapter 14. Paul and Barnabas passed through Pisidia and came into Pamphylia. When they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Atalia. Could be Atalia, could be Atalia. I don't care how we pronounce it. <laughs> but it's... Uh, yeah, these guys were exhausted from their travels, their hard work in the proclamation of the gospel. You know, this, this whole trip, including getting stoned and left for dead and the Taurus Mountains and Paul getting sick right off the bat. What a way to start a missionary journey when you're, you're too ill to stop in one town and you've got to go to the next town. You know, they, they'd been on the road a long time. They headed home to Antioch and Syria and having passed through Pisidia, they came to Pamphylia to the city of Perga where Paul had gotten sick. Now, others probably would have rested there. Okay, we deserve a few days off. And before we go down to the seaport, let's, let's take off our shoes or our sandals, put up our feet, but uh, not these two guys. You know, on account of Paul's illness and the desertion by John Mark, they hadn't had the opportunity to preach in Perga before. And something's undone here. We've, we've got to preach. We've got to bring the gospel wherever we are. And the first missionary journey ends in verse 26 through 28 of, of Acts chapter 14. And here we see their reverence. From there they sailed to Antioch, from which they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had accomplished. When they had arrived and gathered the church together, they began to report all things that God had done with them. Does that sound familiar from what we saw in uh, Judges? And how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. They spent a long time with the disciples. What a remarkable way to end that first missionary journey. They came back to the place from which they had been commended to the grace of God. After accomplishing the work, they gathered the church together, began to report all that God had done. Some may have boasted about what they had done of the churches they had planted, the number of converts they had made, the, the number of baptisms they had performed, the miracles they had performed, but not Paul and Barnabas. They kept all their accomplishments in the proper perspective noting that God had done all these things through them and that he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. They merely saw themselves as instruments through which God had accomplished his purposes, through whom God had worked. All the glory went to him, 
And this is essential. This perspective is essential if we are to serve the Lord. You see, the key to all of this as we sum it up is our view of God. It's our adoration and reverence for him. Do we know him and have we seen him work personally in our lives? You know, in order to pass on first-hand faith, what do you have to have? <laughs> first-hand faith. People aren't going to listen to our witness or to our message or come to Grace Baptist Church because of who we are. Sorry about that. I hope that doesn't offend anybody. <laughs> or what programs we provide or what we do or don't do. Sure, God uses all these things as he calls us to the work, but the bottom line is that God in Christ is drawing men and women and boys and girls to himself. To come to him. To reach this generation, Grace Baptist Church needs to be a people who gather together and report all that God has done. A people like Isaiah who see God exalted, high and lifted up. And having been forgiven of our sins, we say, here am I, send me. Like Arnold Horshack on Welcome Back, Cotter. That stupid show's back on TV again. I'm sorry I ever quoted Arnold Horshack because now I'm deeply embarrassed. But every time he had the answer, he's got his hands up like this. You know, he knows the answer. That was Isaiah. I've been experienced the living God. Here am I, send me. People like Moses who say to God, if your presence does not go up with us, do not lead us up from here. A people who have pushed through the veil into the very presence of God and having experienced God in his presence, we tell people what we have seen and know of God because we have been with God. We have seen him work. A people who have beheld the glory of Christ as in a mirror and are being transformed more and more into that image from glory to glory. A people who seek God work every day in many ways and more than anything else want other people to see him as well. A people who are disciples of Jesus Christ and who are disciple makers. A people who follow hard after God who cry out with the psalmist as the deer pants for the water brooks. My soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for the living God. When shall I come to appear before him? A people who want to own the lordship of Jesus Christ over all aspects of their lives and of their families and come under obedience to his command. May the Lord make us these people. Shall we pray? Our Heavenly Father, the task before us is just way too big. It's way too daunting. It's easy to get discouraged and think, oh, no. <laughs> but, Lord, that's because we've taken our eyes off you. <laughs> Father, more than anything else, draw us closer to you, closer in relationship, closer in spiritual and, and, and presence in that way, Father, and in, in every way, Lord. Because we cannot go from an experience of you. We cannot go from worshiping you. We cannot go from being in your presence. We cannot go from seeing you work. And at the same time say, 
Lord, that's not going to make a difference because it does. It makes all the difference, Father. And Father, may we not only go from this place this morning with cups of cold water to a world that is so thirsty, so dry, but that we would go from every place where we have spent time with you, from every place where we have seen you work. Father, that we would go with the mercy and the grace and the love and the gospel message of Jesus Christ. And for this we pray in Jesus' name.